Hi, I'm Joseph Feraldi. I want to thank you for joining us here at Bayside Chapel Online. Our prayer is that today's service will be a blessing to you, that it will encourage you in your journey with Jesus Christ, and it will help you to see all that God has in store for you. We would love to hear from you on how God is using this ministry to bless you, and we'd love the opportunity to pray for you. Just send us an email at amen at baysidechapel.org. Remember that you can stay in touch with us at any time. Just visit the App Store and search for our app at Bayside Chapel of NJ. Also, if God is using this ministry to bless you, we'd like to give you the opportunity to partner with us financially. Simply go online to BaysideChapel.org or use the Bayside Chapel app and choose whatever option works best for you. Enjoy today's message. Have you ever been told or promised something so absurd, so ridiculously, or, or so impossible that all you could do was laugh? You know, maybe you were told that the New York Jets would win the Super Bowl this year. You know, maybe you were, on a serious note, maybe you were promised that the cancer that's ravishing your loved one would be miraculously wiped away. Well, on February 12, 2020, shortly after, the, after we were all made aware of the coronavirus epidemic, a famous televangelist went on TV holding up a blue and silver bottle with a mysterious liquid in it. While gazing intently at the label, uh, he said, this epidemic that is now circling the globe, you're saying the solution would be effective. He was speaking to a, his guest, who was a self-proclaimed natural health expert. She falsely implied that the liquid would likely be effective. The coronavirus at this point had impacted already 120,000 people worldwide. You remember, this is February 2020 almost two years ago. Well, she responds, let's say it hasn't been tested on this strain of the coronavirus, but it has been tested on a bunch of other strains and it has been able to eliminate it within 12 hours. It totally deactivates it, kills it, eliminates it. This solution has been proven uh, that has the ability to kill every pathogen it has ever been tested on, including SARS and HIV. While this conversation was happening on the TV, the viewer watched, they could see scrolling across the bottom of the screen the message, four four-ounce bottles could be yours for just one low payment of $80. It's crazy, you know, even laughable. And who would have thought, but apparently, selling a fake treatment for COVID-19 violates both federal and state laws. Who would have thought? So not only was the advertisement quickly taken down, but the individual was ordered to pay over $150,000 in restitution uh, to settle the lawsuits that he had faced. So how about you? Have, you? have you ever been told something or promised something that seemed just crazy, seemed absurd, or just too impossible to believe? Has there been something that seemed so outrageous or so ridiculously impossible that all you could do was laugh it off? You know, maybe there is something that you had hoped for, something that you had even cried out to God for, that you hoped that someday, somehow, would pass. And it's true. You know, many times when a situation seems impossible, it's that. It, it's impossible. There's nothing that you or I could do to fix it. You or I don't have the ability to cure the cancer that's ravishing our loved one. 
no matter how hard you try, no matter how many counseling sessions you sit through, there's just nothing that you can do to save your marriage. You watch your child who just keeps going back to the addiction of drugs, and the list goes on. Sometimes there's just nothing that we can do. There are situations that come up in our lives each and every day that seem hopeless and impossible. Situations where we are looking for the impossible. You know, last week we learned of the Lord's appearing to Abraham, once again confirming the impossible, the covenant that he had promised Abraham, the promise of the son. The Lord gave Abraham a sign of the covenant and promised uh, and announced that it would be his wife, Sarah, who would be the mother of the promised seed. After changing her name to Sarah, God said in Genesis 17, I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. And so this is where we pick up our story this morning in the life of Abraham. If you have your Bibles this morning, I encourage you to turn to Genesis chapter 18. If you don't have your Bibles and you're with us here in person or if you're watching online, go ahead and follow along on the screens as the text is displayed. Genesis 18, verse 1, And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet, him, meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while you bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three sayas of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who then prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk in the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. To open the narrative, we find Abraham relaxing at the entrance of his tent during the heat of the day or around noontime. This area that's referred to as the Oaks of Mamre had been Abraham's home since he and Lot had separated back in Genesis 19, excuse me, Genesis 13. Genesis 13, 18 says, So Abraham moved his tent and came and settled by the Oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. See, this area was special. It was a land that had been promised to Abraham. There was an altar that he had built to worship the Lord nearby. It was where he was promised a family. It was an area filled and overflowing with promise. Well, it was a little after noontime, and Abraham was resting near the opening of his tent. You know, he's leaned back. He's, he, he's letting the tent shade him from the afternoon sun. He's probably tired from all the work from the morning chores and managing his workers. And maybe he, in his mind, you know, maybe he's been thinking about all that God had blessed him with. Now he's coming back to all the promises that God had made to him and even more recently had reminded him of. He was thinking back to when he and Sarah had decided to take matters into their own hands with Hagar. And now with Ishmael, well, he's hoping that he hasn't messed up too bad on that. I wonder if Abraham was possibly thinking, maybe even daydreaming, about the promise of a son from his wife Sarah. And he can't help but smile. 
thinking on the promise that he would be the father of many nations, and Sarah, his bride, would be the mother of kings and of nations. But all of a sudden, Abraham is startled. He, he looks up and he sees three men come, coming out of nowhere, standing over by his oak trees. Abraham apparently sensed from their appearance that these visitors must be honored. Notice what we read in verse 2. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself low to the earth. You know, while the text doesn't say at what point Abraham recognized that these men, uh, one of them was the Lord who had come to him, we could be certain that he realized pretty quick off that this was not an ordinary, an ordinary visit of travelers passing through. This visit was something special. So Abraham gave these men the respect that is due those of higher honor or higher privilege or rank. The text says that Abraham ran over to meet them, that he bowed low to the ground. In true Eastern fashion, Abraham feels compelled to treat them with the greatest hospitality that he possibly can. You know, it's interesting to note that even today, hospitality in the Middle East is considered to be the bedrock of cultures and of countries. And Abraham certainly was a great example of early Middle Eastern hospitality, wasn't he? Let's look at verse 3. And Abraham said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while you bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. So again, Abraham's generosity shows us that this was not just a normal visit. These three men standing in front of him were special. You know, let me get you some water to wash off the dirt off your feet. Go ahead, rest in the shade. Let me get you just a little piece of bread so that you can refresh yourself from your long journey. You know, it's interesting that Abraham minimized the provisions and the trouble it would take to prepare them. What he actually provided was a large feast. In verse 6, we read, And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three sayas of fine flour, knead it, and make cakes. Continuing in verse 7, Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. So here we, we see that Abraham hurried. He instructed Sarah to hurry. His servant hurried. He had water brought to wash their feet. And even though there were only three guests, three sayas, the equivalent of six gallons of fine flour was baked, plus an entire calf. And the meal was served alongside curds and milk. So here's a man that's you know, pictured as he's 100 years old at this time, and he's running around like crazy. It's during the hottest part of the day. It's hot. And he's caring for these needs of these perfect strangers. Really, they're uninvited guests. Abraham is running around at 100 years old as if he's preparing for a royal feast. And as the three men enjoyed the benefits of Abraham's hospitality, Abraham, the ever-so-humble host, stood nearby, just, just off to the side, waiting to see how next he could serve them. When writing Hebrews 13, verse 12, the author of Hebrews 
looks back to Abraham's example of humble hospitality and writes, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. You know, we believe that he's referring back to Abraham and at this point in Abraham's life and how he entertained or provided generous hospitality to these three men. The text says that it's even possible that you've unknowingly entertained angels, and that's exactly what Abraham did. Abraham entertained, he, he showed generous hospitality to both angels and to the Lord. But now with the meal coming to an end, the focus of the text here in Genesis, uh, it changes from Abraham's hospitality. Look at verse 9. They said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. So finishing up from the meal, the men asked Abraham, so where is Sarah anyways? And he said, oh, she's, she's back there in the tent. And then all of a sudden, the light bulb went on. Like, wait a second. Sarah? If there had been any doubt in Abraham's mind about who these men were, it was now gone. They had just used the divinely given name of his wife, Sarah, the name just given to her. No one knew that her name had changed from Sarai to Sarah, especially not these three strangers. And not only that, they had just repeated almost word for word the announcement from the Lord about the birth of their son around this time next year. Abraham realized that this was the Lord God himself. God had once again appeared to Abraham in the form of a stranger. And they had just shared a meal together. How cool is that? You see, Abraham had just realized the real reason why his afternoon nap was interrupted it was so that the Lord could reconfirm or to remind Abraham of his promise of a son by Sarah. Verse 11, now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself saying, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? You know, so, so Sarah, overhearing this conversation that's happening just a few feet away, she almost chokes on her lunch. You know, she spits it out and she's like, yeah, okay. I stopped trying to have a child years ago. There's absolutely no way. I'm infertile. Tested, diagnosed, confirmed. It ain't going to happen. It can't happen. And on top of that, have you seen Abraham? <laughs> He's old. But it wasn't only the fact that Sarah was infertile or that Abraham was old. These two obstacles in and of themselves was enough to prove that the promise would only be possible by, by God alone. But Sarah's age takes us one step further. She was, she was past the physical age of barren children. For Sarah to have a child was not just unlikely. It was simply impossible. There was absolutely no way that Sarah would be able to have the pleasure of having a family on her own. It's laughable, and sadly, she had given up on that dream years ago. And in verse 13, the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? So the Lord, knowing how Sarah had responded in her heart, asked Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh? 
and say, will I really have a child now that I am old? Well, it's at this point that Sarah makes a startling discovery. She learned at that very moment that the Lord could see inside of her. He knew her every thought. He could see her every reaction. He knew her heart. King David, a 14-generation descendant of Abraham and Sarah, wrote in Psalm 139, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You see, Sarah was doused with the reality that God is omniscient or all-knowing. And in that brief moment, I have to wonder if she began to realize that if God really knows her this intimately, then maybe he can do anything. As Sarah processes what she just learned, she hears this from the Lord. Verse 14, Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Talk about a gut check. This rhetorical question was a brief rebuke to Sarah. It was drawing attention to the fact that the ability of the Lord is beyond all human comprehension and understanding. You know, once the obstacle of the physical impossibility of Sarah's giving birth to a son was firmly established, the Lord again repeated his promise to Abraham, I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Believe it. <laughs> but Sarah in verse 15 said, I did not laugh. For she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. You know, it's at this point that Sarah, who had been, again, eavesdropping, you know, at listening at the entrance to the tent, having realized who she was speaking, or who was speaking to Abraham, is when she finally uh, entered the conversation. And she entered it with a very terse or very quick reply. Sarah was quick to deny the fact that she laughed. She was now likely embarrassed. But the author of the text quickly puts aside her response and goes on to explain that she lied because she was afraid. You see, Sarah didn't want to admit that she didn't have the faith that it could happen. Now, I find it interesting that our text this morning stops on that note. Yes, you did laugh. Now, there was no denying the fact that Sarah laughed. There was no way of her getting out of it. You know, in fact, I, I think that even may, have, may be even a family trait. If you remember from our text last week, it wasn't just Sarah who laughed at this promise from God. Genesis 17, 17 said, Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed. She comes by it naturally. He fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? So I guess Abraham has seen himself in the mirror. He's old. Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, also bear a child? You know, Abraham and Sarah were, will forever remember their response, this laughter, because their son, whose name literally means, whose son Isaac literally his name means one who laughs. You know, and if we're honest this morning, when we're faced with an impossible situation, 
Isn't our response consistent with Sarah's? We're caught off guard. We're, we wonder how these things can be, and we look at it from our own human perspective, and what do we do? We laugh. And like Sarah, we, we too forget about the one who is making the promise. You see, the Lord came in person to announce to Abraham that the time had come for his promise to be fulfilled. He said, I'll be back at this time next year, and guess what? You're going to have a son, just as I promised. His words were laughed at because they promised something that was humanly impossible. It would be absurd to think Sarah, of all people, would ever become pregnant. But the Lord chose to do the impossible because it would only be possible through the Lord's provision. There could be no other way. God promised a child to an infertile 90-year-old woman along with her 100-year-old husband because nothing is too hard for the Lord. So let me ask you a question this morning, and let's be honest with ourselves. Don't answer out loud, just answer to yourself in your heart. But is there a specific situation or circumstance that you just can't get past? Is there something that is way beyond you and your control that may be even something that you feel is just too hard for the Lord? It's important to remember now more than ever the promise that nothing is too hard for the Lord. It's in times like this that we need to hold on to this truth. We need to stop focusing on the impossibility of the task and instead turn our focus to the one whose power and ability far exceeds all that we could ever ask or imagine. So we're going to look at three specific times that it's important to remember this truth. The first is when we face a task beyond our ability or a challenge greater than our own strength. Joni Erickson Tata, a name that may be familiar to a lot of us, when she was a 17-year-old teenager, she took a dive that changed her life forever. She had lived a very active life all through her growing up years, enjoying riding horses, riding bikes, playing tennis, and yes, swimming. But on July 30th, 1967, she dove into the Chesapeake Bay after misjudging how shallow the water was. She suffered a fracture between the fourth and fifth vertebrae, becoming paralyzed from her shoulders down. You know, her, her story has been told so often that you know, it may seem redundant here, but there's an important point that's not often made, one that gives us a vital insight into how God works in and through our circumstances. You know, of course, her, her broken body at first brought denial and bitterness. When Joni began to confront her paralysis, she was encouraged by some friends to have the faith that God could miraculously heal, heal her. After all, nothing is too hard for the Lord, right? As she explored her faith, she struggled with the difference between faith that God could heal her and faith that God would heal her. Would it take just as much faith to believe that God would heal her spirit without healing her body and use her in his service no matter her limitations? Doesn't God do a hard thing when he uses us despite our limitations? 
If you had told Joni some 30 years later that she would, if you would have told Joni then that some 30 years later she would be an internationally known mouth artist, you know, meaning she, she paints and draws with uh, the paintbrush in her mouth because she doesn't have use of her arms. If you would have told her then that she'd be an author of more than 25 books and translated into 33 different languages, if you would have told her that she'd also be an inspirational speaker and whose radio broadcasts are aired by some 800 stations every day, she would have considered that impossible. She would have said, there ain't no way. Well, God did not choose to heal Joni physically. He did heal her mentally and spiritually, using her in ways that she may never know the full extent. You see, God is able of making the way easier, but what's even more remarkable is that he can enable us to walk victoriously the more difficult path. You know, God could have made the promise of a son to Abraham and Sarah many years before. He could have made the promise knowing that Sarah was infertile when they were 20 or 30 years old. But instead, God chose to wait until everyone knew that it was physically impossible. It couldn't happen. There was no way. Once Isaac was born, there'd be no question as to under whose power he was born. Was it easy for Abraham and Sarah? No. Did the Lord have to remind them of his promise? So when you're faced with a challenge that seems to overwhelm you, a daunting decision, an overwhelming schedule, marital tensions, rebellious children, pressures from parents, teachers, bosses, a coach, a seemingly impossible financial responsibility. When you get to the point of saying, I can't handle it, it's at that moment that you need to cling tightly to the truth of God's promise that nothing is too hard for the Lord. Philippians 4.13 says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. We all know we will face many challenges that are greater than our own strength, right? But, but there's more, there's nothing that we can face that is too hard for God. And it's him, and in him, that we find our strength. Number two, there also may be times when we are tempted to lose all hope. Have you ever said to yourself, I just can't handle it anymore. There's, there's no way out. Not only do I not have the strength, but no one else cares and is able to help me either. You know, maybe you've never reached you know, that lowest of lows and reached the, total, the point of total despair, but maybe you've resigned yourself to defeat. You know, maybe you're like Eeyore and Winnie the Pooh kind of living under this dark cloud and you never expect it to get better. Like Sarah, who lost all hope of ever bearing a son, you've lost all hope as well. Have you tried God? You know, I, I know that probably sounds cliche, but have you? You may be thinking, yeah, I've been to the pastor, I've seen a counselor, I, I've reached out to other Christians. 
And that's great. There's, there's a time and a place for each one of those. But have you taken your broken heart to God? He's the only one that can mend it. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. And lastly, there are times when I grasp the helplessness of my sinful condition. You know, maybe you're experiencing an overwhelming situation right now, or, or maybe you're good. Maybe right now in your life, everything is going great. And if that's the case, that's awesome. But there's one thing that we all must rely on God for, and that is for our salvation. And there is no hiding from that. You may think you're a pretty good person, you know, not doing anything too terrible, and certainly not so bad that you need to get saved. But the truth of the matter is that we've all d done things that's disappointed God. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one can deny the fact of sin in their life. You know, you may say, well, if it's that serious, then I'll just change. But trying to be good doesn't change the fact that we are already sinners under God's condemnation. The sin must be removed. And we are powerless to do it ourselves. But what's, what is impossible for us to do, God did for us through Jesus Christ. Amen? It says in 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. What is impossible for us to do, God did through the person of Jesus Christ. As the worship team comes up this morning, there may be things in this life that we can do for ourselves. You know, we can improve our health by changing our diet or exercising or by taking medication. We, we can take a new job, we can move, we can buy a bigger house, we can choose to go to a different college or school. There are so many things in our life that we can control. But there are also those things that are literally impossible for us to control. Come to him in your weakness. Come to him in your despair. Come to him in your helplessness and hopelessness. Only he can strengthen you for whatever demands you may face. Only he can fill you with hope. Only he can save you from your sin. Is a child from a dead womb too hard for the Lord? For the Lord who created the universe, who destroyed the earth with a flood and confused the languages of Babel, bringing a child from Sarah's womb was not impossible. You know, in fact, it's no laughing matter, is it? He can do it because nothing is too hard for the Lord. Let's bow together in an attitude of prayer. If you're with us today and you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I encourage you today could be the day of your salvation. Acts 16.31 says, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved.
All I have to do is say in your heart, God, I know that I'm a sinner. I know I've done things that have displeased you. And I know that I am helpless to fix it, but Father, I believe. I believe that you sent your son to die for my sins, taking away the penalty and guilt of all my sin. God, I accept that free gift. Thank you for sending your son to die in my place and for saving me. If you prayed that prayer this morning, would you do me a favor and just raise your hand? We want to pray with you this morning. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Now I also want to encourage you to do one more thing. And that's to stop by the banner in the foyer that says yes on it. If you would just go up and tell Paul, I said yes, he'll give you a booklet titled Saying Yes to a Relationship with Jesus. This booklet can help you as you begin your journey with Jesus. Father God, we, we thank you this morning for those who have said yes. For those who said, I can't do this on my own. For those who have put their faith and trust in you this morning, I ask that you would bless them. That you would send them away with the knowledge that their sins are forgiven, that Christ wants to do great things in and through them. Bless them. Watch over them and help them as they begin their walk with you today. And Father, for, for those who are feeling helpless this morning, those who are facing something far beyond their ability, for those who are living under this dark cloud and who are tempted to lose all hope, I ask that you would constantly remind them, constantly remind us that nothing is too hard or too difficult for you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for caring for us. Thank you for saving us. I ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.